0: Our text today, please rise for the reading of God's Word. Our text today is from Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Have you ever had a falling out with someone where you were no longer speaking? In fact, you may have found yourself avoiding that person. They have offended you, or perhaps you have offended them, or both. You are separated. You are unreconciled. Perhaps neither side is prepared to make the first move to attempt to repair the relationship. Ever since Adam hid himself from God in the garden, most people have been doing the same thing. The prophet Isaiah says that your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. Sin separates. It kills. In Romans 5, we see God, by His grace alone, initiating reconciliation by removing our sin. Of course, He's not the offender. We're the offender. But He is the one that initiates, that makes the move, to repair the relationship, to restore us, to be reconciled. He moved, <clears throat> he moved, and we, by His grace, responded. And as a result, the text tells us, we now have peace with God. It, it's this marvelous grace that we've been looking into. We have seen and learned uh, that this grace... We learn about this grace through Scripture alone. And last time we considered that it is through Christ alone that this grace is made possible. Jesus does all the work. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus obeyed His Father. He went all the way to the cross and there at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God. He stood in our place as our mediator and He continues to mediate for us. He did did it all. But today, I would like us to consider the grace itself. In our five slogans of the Reformation, this is grace alone. Chapter 5 of Romans begins by asserting three things. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. And we have hope of the glory of God. Of course, all of this is through Jesus Christ, and all of it is due to the grace of God. We now now have the right to approach Him, which is the language of the temple where certain people gained access and were able to come near to God. This is described in the text as access, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access is critical. Grace is God Himself in a merciful disposition toward sinful men. The justification of sinners is the most extreme and glorious manifestation of grace there is. It doesn't get any bigger. doesn't get any better. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer 33 simply... What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. Justification is an act. It's something God does all on His own. It's an act of His free grace wherein He pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ which is imputed to us and received by faith alone. This justification is an event in which the power of God is demonstrated and it is no less effective than the manifestations of His wrath. Both of those are acts of His judgment. One is a judgment to pardon, the other a judgment to to punish, But the Bible presents God as the judge in either case. The purpose of God's justifying work in setting forth Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice, that is one who removes His wrath, His just judgment and wrath against sinners, is to show that God is just even in His justifying sinners who believe in Jesus. The law of God, do you like it? Is it your friend? Are you attracted to it? When you hear the law, do you frown or smile? Is that welcoming or off-putting? The law of God is always about Love. How to love God. How to love our neighbor. The opposite of law is what? The opposite of law is not grace. The opposite of law is lawlessness. Grace is something altogether different. So law and grace are not Hitted against one another. Romans 5, 20 and 21, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So maybe if I can paraphrase this, when the Bible comes along and we read the law of God, And it mentions specific things, and all of a sudden I discover myself in there. Oh, they're talking about me. I'm a coward. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. It's shining a light on me. And as it does, I become undone, like Isaiah. Woe is me! I'm in trouble. Grace is bigger than that. Grace abounds more than that. It can overcome that. So when the righteous, perfect, holy, loving law of God in exhaustive detail is held up as a standard, we, all of us, fall short. Sin is exposed. And the need for God's favor, God's grace, His ill-deserved favor, is made evident. Martin Luther said, the fatuous idea that a person can be holy by himself denies God the pleasure of saving sinners. God must therefore First, take the sledgehammer of the law in his fist and smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help. When the conscience has been thoroughly frightened by the law, it welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came not to break the bruised reed nor to quench the smoking flax But to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, and to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives. The word of forgiveness is the word of the Creator who calls things that are not into being. Do you hear that? The same God that said, let there be light, and there was light, that's the God now in His grace that says your sins are have been forgiven. By grace alone, God not only wipes the slate clean, He not only cancels the debt, He also empowers the forgiven sinner. Justification does not conclude the process of salvation, but it places the justified sinner in a new position of service. Whom God justifies, these He also glorifies. Only when God justifies is there a peace within which does not need to vindicate itself. God's justifying act is holy of grace. Holy gracious. Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox all echo Augustine's conviction that grace does not find us willing. It makes us willing. Aren't you glad? According to Luther, whereas man's love is aroused by what is lovable, the love of God finds nothing lovable in man, but creates in man what God loves. That is, God's love confers good not because we are lovable, but because we're loved. Verse 5 tells us, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our love is a response to His initiating love. We love Him because He first loved us. You know this hymn written by an anonymous writer, I sought the Lord. I love this. I sought the Lord... And afterward, I knew, He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found, was found of Thee. You know, we have that in John, in the Gospel of John with Philip and Nathanael. Where Jesus sees Philip. And he comes and speaks to Philip. He finds Philip. Philip goes to his brother, Nathaniel. And what does Philip say? If I can paraphrase. Guess who I found? Philip thought he found Jesus, but the text tells us that Jesus actually found Philip. And that's the way... Salvation works. God finds us. For when we were still without strength, verse six, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. This is perhaps one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Let me read it again. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. This is the very epitome of God's love and grace. The perfect Savior lays down His life for the ungodly. And then verses 7 and 8 simply expound upon this. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Death is the last and final act. You can't go further than that. But this was not only death for the ungodly, but His love was seen in the particular form of death which He died. Death on the cross involved injustice, insult, shame, humiliation... Pain, suffering, Paul builds on this argument later in this epistle in chapter 8 of Romans verse 32, he who died, excuse me, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? God does not just give us His Son in the Incarnation, but also upon the cross. Or as Paul said in the last verse of chapter 4, who was delivered up because of our offenses. Our salvation does not depend upon our love for Him, but rather His love for us. And that is incredibly good news. Our salvation rests entirely on the grace and love of God toward us. Paul describes it this way, Philippians 2, eight, And being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When you look at the cross, you should see an entirely gratuitous gift of love and grace. If it had been done for good people, that would be one thing. But Paul tells us four things in this passage about the recipients of grace. See if you can find yourself. First, we were without strength. That is, there was a total inability to save ourselves. We were helpless. We were... We we couldn't do anything. We had no strength. There was a total absence of spiritual strength. We could not even understand spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. One of the best words in the Bible. But. He said, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. There's grace. But God, who is rich in mercy, He doesn't have a little bit, He's rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, without strength, right? Dead, that's, that's about... As without strength as it gets, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. in His kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, that no one should boast. Second, so first, we're without strength. Second, he says, those who are the recipients of this grace were ungodly. To be ungodly means that we're not like God. Satan promised Eve that if she would eat the forbidden fruit, that she would be like God, and she bought the lie. Paul has already made this point in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man's chief end was to glorify God, and instead we have defaced His image. Third, the text tells us we were sinners. That is, we were lawbreakers. Criminals in God's universe. None righteous. No, not one. We were the offenders. We missed the mark. We came short. But this is the kind of person Jesus came to save. Number four, verse 10, we were enemies. We were actively opposed to God. We don't delight in Him or His law. The sinner hates God and pits his own will against the will of God. Romans 8, 7 through 8, because the carnal mind is enmity against God or hostile. For it is not subject to the law of God, for it is nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so God's marvelous grace is seen in the fact that when we were like this, when we were without strength, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were enemies... When we deserved justice, punishment, wrath, that's when He sent His Son to die for us. It was the Son who did the work, but it was the Father who sent the Son to do the work. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Repairing the broken relationship. God hates sin, but He has an everlasting love for the sinner. In fact, it's his great hatred of sin in the light of his holiness that demonstrates his marvelous grace. That's the backdrop. Romans 9. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? and that and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. This was all part of God's plan, and the text tells us again, in due time. In other words, at the appropriate time, or at the appointed time, when God was ready to reveal this, Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law. God's grace was part of God's plan before the foundation of the world. And thus the Bible speaks of Jesus as being the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. If salvation is the result of God's eternal plan, to demonstrate His love for us, then it is His grace alone that explains our salvation. Ephesians 1, 4-10 He chose us... Wait a minute, I thought I chose Him. No. I chose Him after He chose me. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Why? To the praise of the glory of His grace. Unlike our love, which is impulsive and changeable, His love is unchangeable and eternal. God's love has done everything we need and everything we shall need. Verse 8 again, but God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Another significant point regarding the due time was that God's gracious intervention came again when we were still without strength. Not just us individually, but think about the historical setting for this. The Jews, the Greeks, the Romans had all demonstrated that they were unable to save themselves. The Jews had the law. The Greeks had their philosophy. The Romans had their political and military power. And they could not save man. God's grace breaks in and steals the stage with an unlikely hero. This is always the point. When we are, is, it's always the point that when we are without strength, that's when God sends His Son. Notice also that it was not the life or the miracles or the teaching of Jesus so much as it was His death that demonstrates His love for us. love is always about the sacrifice of ourselves for the sake of someone else without his death you could not be saved it was essential Hebrews 2.9 but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death For everyone. If God has done the hard thing for us, justifying us, then how much more will He do when it comes to doing the easier thing? This is the force of verses 9 and 10. Much more then. Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if... When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, thanks to the marvelous grace of God, we have something to celebrate and rejoice in. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now already received the reconciliation. We're about to come to the Lord's table to eat with Him, to commune with Him. We walk with Him. We live with Him. Every day, every moment, we have been reconciled. We have a great picture of this both in the story of the sinful woman, another story of where a woman washed the feet of Jesus, in this case with her tears and her valuable perfume and then the subsequent parable of the debtors that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. I want to read that as we wrap up this morning from Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, so he invites Jesus over for lunch. And when he went to the Pharisees' house and sat down to eat, behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, I love this, these details the Bible puts in. He spoke to himself. I don't know if he just thought it or maybe whispered it to himself. Didn't think anybody could hear, knew what he was thinking. He said to himself, this, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And you can imagine the surprise when Jesus says to him, who just spoke to himself, Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This morning I was working through this and I decided to just look uh, as I was wrapping, as as a way to wrap up this sermon, I ran across across a couple of quotes I want to share with you that I think address what we've been talking about. One from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking of this passage, he says, now let us sum up the whole argument of verses 6 to 8. The Apostle's argument is that there is nothing whatsoever in us to recommend us, nothing at all. Why did Christ come into the world? Was it in answer to some plea that came from mankind? Not at all. Was it in response to some good in man? Was it because of some divine spark still remaining? Some manifestations of that? Not at all. There was nothing in mankind to recommend it to God, nothing in human nature, nothing in any one of us to recommend us in any way to God and to His love. Indeed, the truth about us was and is that there was everything in us that was wrong and vile and hateful, everything calculated to antagonize God toward us, enemies, Hateful, vile, ungodly sinners as we were, we must realize that our salvation is entirely gratuitous and arises only and altogether from the love of God in His infinite grace. Three more. B.B. Warfield. There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. It is always on His blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. There is never anything that we are or have or do that can take His place or that take a place along with Him. We are always unworthy and all that we have to do of good is always of pure grace. Martin Luther, for almost 20 years, and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God that I may contribute something. So that He will have to give me His grace in exchange for my holiness. And I still cannot get into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. And finally, John Calvin. The more eminently that anyone excels in holiness, the farther he feels himself from perfect righteousness. And the more clearly he perceives that he can trust nothing but the mercy of God alone. Hence it appears that those are grossly mistaken who conceive that the pardon of sin is necessary only to the beginning of righteousness, as believers are every day involved in many faults, it will profit them nothing that they have once entered the way of righteousness unless the same grace which brought them into it accompany them to the last step of life. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to know that we have peace with You solely because You first loved us and demonstrated that love by sending Your Son to die for us. We now have access to You by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Indeed, Your love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Through Christ alone, we have been saved from wrath and reconciled to you. And for this, we rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amen. I want to read Romans 5, 8 again. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This demonstration, this proof of the love of God, is one of the profoundest sources of assurance that we can ever have. Do you ever wrestle with assurance? Sometimes that's because we, we're looking for assurance in ourselves. Lloyd-Jones asked some important questions. Imagine what the position would be if our salvation were not entirely of grace. If, for instance, I believe that Christ had died for me because I loved God, and because I was trying to please God, and because I was a good man who was striving to keep the law and who had succeeded up to a point, if I believe that my salvation was the result of the fact that I was such a good man, then the inevitable corollary would be that I should say to myself, what if in the future, sometime or another, I should love God less? What if I fail to keep His commandments? What if I fail to seek God and to please Him and to live for Him as I have been doing in the past? If my salvation depends on what I am and what I've done and what I desire, if it, is in any, if it in any sense depends upon me, what security have I got? I might change. I might falter. I might fail. If our salvation depended in any sense or to any extent at all upon ourselves, our position would always be precarious. We might fail at any moment and would then lose all, but thank God, as, the, as says the Apostle, that it, that, is, that is not our position. Our salvation in no respect at all depends upon ourselves. It is entirely dependent upon the grace of God. And because my salvation depends upon the grace of God and on that alone and on nothing in me, I am sure of it. I am certain of it. Why? Because God does not change and cannot change. Amen. O Lord our God, we acknowledge that You alone are the initiator and worker of our salvation. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we assist You in saving us. We are the blessed objects of your grace. Clearly, Christ did demonstrate His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. While we were enemies, You reconciled us to Yourself through Your Son. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God and our strength in whom we will trust, our shield and the horn of our salvation. You are our stronghold. We will call upon you who is worthy to be praised. We will rejoice in your salvation. And in your name we will set up our banners. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Father, in gratitude for your work of salvation, we commit ourselves to serve you with gladness in this new week. To do justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly with you. Proclaiming the good news of your salvation from day to day. declaring Your glory among the nations and Your wonders among all peoples. For You, O Lord, are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. Bless now our time of rest and fellowship as we delight in You and in one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which He will manifest in His own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen."